Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, we explore many different facets of the Texas wine industry. I review Texas wine news and bring you the interviews, education, and information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thank you for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 14. We are a week out from Thanksgiving, and it's a time of year when we're thinking about family. Today I'm talking to David and Julie Culkin. They're the dynamic brother-sister duo that co-owns and runs Petternalis Cellars. We had a great conversation about the history of their family winery, what's going on in Texas, and even the confusion over the pronunciation of Petternalis. And of course I'm drinking a Petternalis wine. It's the 2018 Petternalis Cellars Texas High Plains Viognier Reserve. First, let's take a look at the Texas wine news. North Texas Wine Country will sponsor the second annual blind tasting competition and holiday market this Saturday at Fortunata Winery in Aubrey. You sign up for a 90-minute time slot, and then you get to be the judge. You taste and score up to 70 wines during those 90 minutes. And when you're not in the tasting tent, you can shop with the holiday market vendors. There will also be food and live music. Tickets are $50 and available at NorthTexasWine.com. I would totally be there if it wasn't my daughter's birthday. Next, Texas Tempranillo is back in the news. A new Vine Pair article by Tish Wiggins shares some history on Tempranillo in the state, and she includes five Tempranillos to try, including Newsom Vineyards, Paternalis, Eden Hill, Becker, and Hack. I'll link to it in the show notes. The Texas Fine Wine Group has a new holiday celebration pack that just went live this week. It's got one bottle from each of the five participating wineries, and these are the wines that are included in the pack. There's a Bending Branch Tanat, a Brennan Vineyards W, which is a red blend, also known as Winemaker's Choice, a Dukeman Family Winery Alianico, the Paternalis Viognier Reserve, and the Spicewood Vineyards Good Guy. The price of the five-bottle pack is $160 plus tax. Shipping is included, and it's available for shipping to more than 30 states. Also, remember that case of Texas wine that was promoted by the State Fair? Well, it's still available, and there are also now six-packs and three-packs if you want some Texas wine, just a bit less of it. I'll include links to those in the show notes, but the three-pack includes, once again, the 2018 Petternalis Viognier Reserve, and then from West Cave Cellars, we've got a red blend called Spectrum and an RK Syrah. The three-pack is 80 bucks, And then the six-pack includes totally different wines, the Fall Creek Lescalo, which is that new wine from Fall Creek that has fewer calories and carbs. It's got the McPherson Pick Pool. It has a white blend called Sketch, which is by Vinovium. That's a wine that I've really been wanting to try. It's got the Ready Vineyards Field Blend, always a favorite. The Calisai Cellars Malbec, that's a new one, and a winery that I had the opportunity to visit not so long ago. And then finally, the High Meadow Alianico. And that pack, that six pack, is $160. So please check the show notes for those links. 
Now, individual wineries are offering all kinds of packages and shipping deals for the holidays, so be sure to check out the offers from your favorite Texas wineries. And that's the Texas Wine News. I am so excited to bring you this interview with David and Julie Culkin, the co-owners of Pedernalis Cellars. David Culkin is the executive winemaker at Pedernalis and is also the current president of the Texas Hill Country Wineries Association. Dr. Julie Culkin directs marketing and hospitality at Pedernalis. As their website tagline says, they've been sustainably growing Texas grapes since 1995. 100% Texas-grown Spanish and Rhone-style wines. The interview covers a lot of ground on all of these topics, sustainability, family history, and selecting varieties in Texas. Plus, we get an answer once and for all on the Pedernalis-Pertinalis issue. Now, here's the interview. I wanted to have a podcast episode around Thanksgiving. And when I think about Thanksgiving, I think about family. And I think it's so unique that you are a brother and sister team running Pedernalis Cellars. And one of your primary vineyard sources is one that your parents planted 25 years ago. And I know this year you've been celebrating that anniversary. And so I wondered, first of all, was it always clear what role each of you would have at the winery? Boy, you want to start that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's evolved over time. Uh, early on, uh, Frederick was much more involved. And I would say that uh, my role was actually relatively minor. I was ju- mostly doing just labels uh, for the most part. Um, uh, and, and occasionally working with the vineyard. The vineyard's always been something that we put time into. Uh, but um, as Frederick, uh, when Frederick stepped down, I to some extent stepped into a, more or less what Frederick was effectively doing uh, at the winery. Uh, and I know that Dave's role has, has evolved over time. Uh, I want to describe that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think, you know, Julie gave some, some good context and there's more too that like, you know, we got into this in part because, you know, my parents planted that vineyard way back in 1995 and they did it not to, not to operate a winery, of course, but just to grow grapes and ultimately they were going to sell those to other wineries. But, you know, like Julie, maybe more so than I did, got involved very early on because I think she had a window of time, right, when you were there and out in the hill country with them when they were planting. And so she was more involved with helping getting the, the vineyard established. But I don't think if you go back that far, any of us, including my parents, ever imagined we would be running a winery and, you know, have a brand and selling wine. That is something that it took all of us, Julie and Friedrich and my my wife, Heather, or ex-wife, Heather, at the time, to, um, to kind of all get involved in since it was such a big commitment. And yeah, I mean, those roles have changed because, you know, as part of us, we're just kind of doing, I think, what we had the space and time to, to do. Julia was a full-time uh, professor at that time and teaching and doing a lot of other things. Um, and so, you know, Friedrich and I had more operational roles early. I've been generally the, 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 the core has always been to be operating as the winemaker and to manage vineyard and production. Um, but again, again, as time has evolved, it's really you know, settled to this place where Julie and I split responsibilities to manage the whole company. And it can be flexible as need be because it's still, you know, for, for however much we've grown and the number of employees we have, ultimately there are just plenty of things that 
just have to get done. And I think as a family business, you just, you, you step in and you do them. And that requires the two of us to kind of coordinate. I'm, you know, like we both essentially have this executive role at this point to, to run things. And even if I'm more uh, on the, the production side and she's more on the sales marketing side, there's plenty of places where we cross over. So things just have to get done. So you step in where needed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, an interesting thing just to reflect back on, you know, how family dynamics work. I mean, that was actually something that Frederick found a hard time with. Uh, I mean, to some extent, that flexibility to say, oh, this needs to get done and we need to think through this operationally. Uh, he, he liked a much more structured environment. Uh, and you could see over time the stresses of that. Uh, but you do have to just sort of say, oh, OK, well, I thought I was going to do this today. But no, I'm going to do that because that's broken <laughs> right now. <laughs> so um, anyway, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, trying to see where, where the gaps are. I saw a quote on your website that talked about, basically, it was reflecting on the 25-year anniversary of the Culkin Vineyard. And the quote is that a benefit of having a family-owned vineyard is that it creates a common purpose across generations and increases time family members spend together. This is especially valuable for the oldest and youngest generations, says the middle generation. <laughs> So when you think about that, about your parents and your children, and you are you are the middle generation, I'm sure that when you flew into Texas to plant that vineyard 25 years ago, you had no idea what was in store, as you said, David. Yeah. But tell me how special it's been to work with your parents and then also bring your kids on board. I know they're still too young to officially be on board, but what it's been like to be in the vineyard. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's, it's existed for as long as they've known in my kid's case and, and Julie's as well. Um, and it has been fantastic as far as it's like, a, it is a common purpose. It's the sort of thing that like they take for granted that it is part of their lives, that we, we run this vineyard, that their, their, their grandparents have been involved in this for so long. Um, and it does, you know, like it, like a, the thing about a vineyard is, is that it, it is such a long-term uh, commitment. It's something that you are doing for decades, not something you talk about as just, well, this year we're, we're, we're into this thing. So it's like you kind of date these parts of your life by it. You remember, oh, I remember the 2012 harvest, or oh my goodness, mm -hmm. I remember the 2014 hailstorm, or mm -hmm. I remember the, you know, like all of these things have become the kind of the structure of your life. And when your family's involved in it, it means that like you also sort of weave all of that together and it. it's a lot of our family time ends up being specifically working on these things, um, being out in the vineyard for harvest together or being involved in pruning, um, being back at the winery during crush. Um, but, you know, like there's other funny things that like my kids have just grown up to become um, just kind of used to and they love is like the fact that they look forward to Thanksgiving in part because it's one of only a handful of days that winery closes and they and all of us can go out to the winery and have a family Thanksgiving there. And there is something sort of special about that because it's, it's not just some place you get to run around without anybody like, you know, trying to be careful about you know, getting in anybody's business. It's that like, this is the family's business and it's a place that for that day, they get to enjoy that part of it and be there and kind of, dovetail all the, the normal Thanksgiving things with the fact that this is what the family does. So, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's been, I mean, I, I definitely think Dave's right. You know, harvest is sort of this, you know, enormously intense time, but it is, 
you know, it, it is something it, I think, did mom and dad ever come out and harvest this year? They did. They did. They did. Though it, okay. it has become increasingly um, a victory lap as much as it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is yeah. I mean, but yeah, it is something because, you know, the, the, because I live in Fredericksburg, uh, you know, the girls go out almost every harvest uh, because they're right there. And it is this sort of, you know, everybody, everybody can harvest grapes, right? Kind of thing, right? It's For just, at least a little bit of time. It, it's kind of backbreaking, but yes. Yeah. Well, it, it's also, it's just, um, I was going to say, you know, even when the girls were very small, like, I mean, the, some, the, like the 2012 harvest, I still, Heather was taking pictures and, you know, you go back and what, how old was, I mean, Carolina, I think was only seven years old at the time, right? But she could, you know, fill a bucket with grapes. Right? And so, you know, it is, you know, it is a lot of, a lot of fun. And I know that dad loves to come to the winery and see, you know, what his little project has turned into, right? Because it's just, uh, he never, never imagined that we would actually start a winery on the basis of, uh, of Colcom Vineyards. So, um, and the girls, and I, you know, it's true, the girls have, I know my girls have really appreciated you know, they did, you know, a little internship where with in the production side um, and now works on Saturdays and just polishes glasses, moves bottles around, you know, just the basic bar back type thing. And, you know, in a year or at the end of the what, six months or so, she can choose whether she wants to get her TABC and actually serve wine because she's getting to an age where she can do that. So anyway, I think all these experiences, you know, yeah, you get to work with your family, but then it's also, you know, it's nice that I, I know who her first boss is, right, which is Marissa, uh, because, you know, I know that she's a good boss and I can, you don't usually get to do that with your kids to say, hey, you know, I, I'm going to have you, you're going to end up working for someone who's going to really, you know, be interested in you know, how you're doing, so. One of the wines that I think is really special that says a lot about your family is the Over the Moon Rosé. And I wonder if you can tell listeners what that is exactly. And then also tell me, did your parents know that that was going to be bottled? And what was their reaction when they found out about it? Well, since this is, yeah, this was actually my... Yeah, yeah. You're the one who came up with it. Yeah, that actually came up with this. And it's funny, because usually Dave's much better at coming up with names. Uh, but the, in this case, we uh, when we put a wine in distribution, we have to have a different wine in the tasting room. So we had in the past, we had always done, you know, it's Texas Tempranillo and then Tempranillo Reserve, and, you know, Viognier and Viognier Reserve. Well, Rosé Reserve is not a thing. So we had to actually come up with another name. And so um, I came up, the, the, the reality is this, the backstory is uh, our parents met uh, working on the Apollo 11 mission. Uh, and uh, they literally met, you know, they were both computer programmers working for IBM and they were contracted to NASA. And they literally met, you know, over a mainframe, right? So it's just sort of a you know, sort of geeky love story kind of thing. Uh, and so I came up with the Over the Moon Rosé as a way of, of commemorating that because ultimately we would not have been in business, I don't think at all, uh, if they hadn't uh, you know, had such a strong marriage. It was, you know, they, they, they lived corporate life until basically their early 50s. And then they went out and planted this vineyard and, you know, were running, cat, you know, the cattle operation they were running so it's a completely different life and that requires a really strong marriage to just you know re redo your life you know in, in middle age so anyway it's nice to be able to commemorate them it happened to be we bottled it right before valentine's day so i literally went to dinner with them. i have dinner with them on wednesdays and i you know it's like happy valentine's day <laughs> and they looked at it and they were really touched they thought it was really really nice 
So I bet that's beautiful. You mentioned your daughter working in the tasting room, and I happen to notice that you you guys have a lot of women in key positions in the winery. So I wonder if you want to brag about your team a little bit. Well, why don't you start on your side of production? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I it has been something that's been true in the company for a while now. And I actually, I mean, I think a lot of that does come with already, like, it starts with having, like, you know, sort of a strong woman in a leadership role to begin with in the company. You know, like the fact that Julie and I make all these decisions about what direction we take, our staff, and it's it's both of us. I think it helps because, you know, we're from the beginning, we're making it ideally a culture that is good for men and women to be in. Um, and then at that point, I feel like it just sort of naturally works out. You wind up hiring the best people you can find, and that's going to be men or women and either no matter what the role is. So like at this at this point, you know, it's pretty it's pretty mixed. I think we actually have we do have more man more managers that are women, I think, than there are men for sure. Um, but that is just been kind of what what applications we feel like are a good fit. So we've got Joanna on on the winemaking side, who's kind of running the the day to day in the cellar, and uh, and Shara, who I am sad to announce actually will be leaving us. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll see who our vineyard manager is going to be next. But um, Shara, who's been our vineyard manager for a while. Um, and yeah, again, I, I think it's one of those, like when we're, like you, you sort of try to set a culture internally and the one that we have tried to strive for is one that we're looking for just the best people for a role. It's not really, like we're not trying to be a culture that is more particularly suitable for women or men. Ideally, it's just for people who are good at their job, right? And then at that point, you you find the best fits for that for that role if you have that kind of open mind to, to what you want and what you can support. So. Yeah, on the you know the, the other side, we have Marissa, who's the tasting room manager, um, and she's grown into that role. We didn't hire her initially to be tasting room manager. It turns out she's one of the best tasting room managers we've had. Uh, she's really this is she's really hit her stride. She she yeah she had moved through a whole bunch of different roles, and then this one really really works for her. She's really good at customer care and you know uh, and managing. The thing about the tasting room manager is this is the person with the most employees. Right. There's a lot of employees there, even if some of them are only in one day a week. And so it, taking all those human relationships and make sure, you know, anybody who doesn't play play with the rest of the team, it usually just doesn't work out, particularly under Marissa. And so you're, you're sort of ironing things out all the time to make sure you don't have anybody who wants to, who says, oh, I don't want to clean the bathrooms or I don't want to, you know, do, or just refuse to play with the rest of with everyone else. Uh, and then we have uh, Carrie who's our wine club manager and events person. Funny thing about her is her background, she was actually an engineer and both David and I have an engineering background. And one of the questions that came up, you know, when we were discussing whether to hire her was, you know, uh, you know, why would an engineer want to come and work at a winery? And both David and I were like, oh, we know. That could <laughs> so, be lots of good reasons. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, uh, and then we have Liv- Livia Shore-Limmer, who's our, our, our controller. And she's just, I mean, she's got, she's brought, an enormous amount of skill, you know, uh, to, she had a lot of experience uh, at some high power uh, places. And so she, you know, it's nice to see her. She's really got brought a lot of organization to, you know, the finances and, you know, the, our ability to do, you know, look at cash flow over time, you know, particularly during the pandemic, she just immediately gets on it. It's like, okay, these are the things we need to consider. 
Um, the other thing I could, would like to say, you know, about create, creating a culture where women thrive is it's really, I think, in like in the case of Marissa, I, she's as, it's partially, there's lots of times women are hired into roles because they are a good fit. But then the culture is such that it just doesn't work. You can't actually use your skills for whatever reason, whatever the, the cultural problems. And so you just leave. Right. You know, I know I have done that. And I think every woman, professional woman I've ever talked to talks about that. Like, you know, you really wanted that to work, but there was no way you could work with that person or with the lack of recognition that you sat in meetings and you couldn't get a word in edgewise with the guys were all talking over you. So, you know, the fact is, I think in some cases we've ended up with a lot of women because they've just stayed. Right. It's a you know, it's an environment where they can thrive as opposed to sort of feeling like they're constantly like trying to be heard. So, uh, and I do think, yes, yeah, uh, I like to believe we were being successful doing that. <laughs> That's great. I thought to ask about that because I think Julie and I first met at the Wonder Women of Wine conference in mm -hmm. 2019. And then of course this year's conference was canceled, but that was a neat, a neat event. And hopefully it'll be back next year at some point to yeah. talk about women in the wine industry. And it takes place in Austin. So there are usually quite a few Texas women from uh, the Texas wineries, but it, spans not only wineries, but distributors and restaurant industry and so forth. Julie, when, uh, when you started the wine club, what was the situation like in Texas? And tell me about what wine clubs were like in 2006 or eight when you started the wine club at Pedernales. Well, I have to say I didn't start it. Uh, Frederick started it. Um, at the time, you know, I know that like, there were only a few wineries at the time. And so that wasn't a huge thing. I've even heard Messina Hoff, interesting enough, which is a much older winery, right? From the start of the 1970s. They didn't start their wine club until after ours. They had this like sort of fan club kind of thing, right? To be part of the family type. Um, and so they had loyal customers and a sort of a way of recognizing that, but they didn't have a, a structured wine club. So a lot of the ideas for the wine club were really coming from California and looking at what they were doing. Um, so, yeah, I can't really you know, say you know, other than it was it was really just a new thing uh, at the time. But there were just very few wineries. I, I don't think Bell Mountain ever had a wine club, did it? Uh, they may or may not have. And I mean, I would, I would echo what Julia is saying is that like when we when we talked to a lot of the wineries that were in the business in Texas at the time, there were a handful that were doing something along the lines of a wine club with relatively, like it was, it was a secondary focus, right? It wasn't necessarily a big deal for them. Um, and a lot of others just really said, well, you know, that's just not, we're not that kind of wine region. This is really just a consumer tasting room kind mm -hmm. of kind of deal. And some were in distribution perhaps as a focus as a way of kind of trying to increase their volume, but there wasn't that sense that there was actually this, that, like, that the conditions needed for wine clubs to be a focus were there. And um, it was, you know, like we, I, I would like to think that we're one of the wineries that, that sort of saw that as a focus in the beginning, because we are more oriented that, you know, we're, we're really about the engagement and the sort of the long-term relationship part of what we're gonna do with customers. And so, Wine Club is a natural fit for that. Um, instead of just looking to bring more people in the door, the goal really is to develop like long-standing sort of relationships with customers who can appreciate and grow with the wine and, and everything else. And so, yeah, that was that was something that the second, like it was really within the first six months, I guess nine months we opened, we did mm -hmm. start that wine club. And, you know, 
there's there's a lot of things to make that work, and they're only really like one part of that is actually about making good wine. I mean, that is a prerequisite, but it is more kind of orienting your business around developing those relationships. So now, yeah, I mean, in, in that time frame, I can't can't say that there's a, there's hardly a winery out there where wine club isn't the focus. And um, you know, I mean, it's it's great to see because to me, it just means that their people are investing a lot longer in terms of what they develop for their customers. They're not just trying to sell some wine. So. And after this crazy year, I'm sure everyone's so glad that they have a bunch of really committed wine club members that are, that are helping them uh, get through this crazy period. Along those lines. I mean, that has actually been one of the surprises. I mean, that, that was one of our fears, right? Was that given the economic situation, uh, the recession that came with the pandemic that we would actually see a lot of wine club members drop, but that is not what happened. They've actually been incredibly loyal and we I really have appreciated, uh, yeah. appreciated that what those long-term relationships really mean. So, yeah, it's really become a, a fantastic way for in both directions for them to still engage with a large block of customers are still engaged with us, even through the worst of this. And obviously for us to be able to reach out and continue to sort of have, have, a connection with customers to sell wine, of course, but also be able to like do do the kinds of distance engagement that you want to do. It's just harder to do with a customer you've never met than it is with plenty of the people who already know what what you're about and you know them a little. So sure. Well, David, I know that you've been serving as the president of the Texas Hill Country Wineries, mm -hmm. and I've been watching a number of your Facebook Live happy hours. So I feel like we're long lost friends, but. <laughs> Besides COVID, what are kind of the issues and, and topics that that group uh, has been talking a lot about in, during your term as president? What are the big challenges? And are those unique to the Hill Country or are those industry-wide challenges? Uh, so again, if, if for people who, who don't know the associations in the state, there's, the Hill Country Association is specifically focused on marketing and branding and events for the wineries that are in the Hill Country area. Um, though like at this point, because we have a number of wineries that also just have tasting rooms down here, they're involved even when they're often operations that are in the High Plains and elsewhere. Um, so, you know, like the, the big focus for us has been about how to market this whole identity, the brand of Texas Hill Country wine. And I think from the Hill Country Winery point of view, we do sort of see this as the heart of both winemaking and kind of wine experience in Texas. So to that degree, we are looking at trying to craft at least that identity. Um, it's, the, you know, it's one of the biggest tourist destinations for wine actually in the United States, but obviously the biggest location where people come to experience wine in Texas. And, uh, you know, that has evolved a lot because when I first got into this uh, you know, the association, we got involved. Really the focus was just on how do you create a, a events that'll bring, you know, people to the front doors of wineries. And we still do that. A lot of the, the events are sort of ticketed events intended to kind of help people tour around and experience new wineries they might not have been to or go back to existing ones. Um, and that's still a useful piece of what the trail does and the association does, but where it has really changed, and I think the challenge we're into is now we're, we're more involved in this conversation about how should people like, you know, like put Texas and Hill Country wine on the map with the sort of the, the wider wine world, right? Like if you talk about Texas Hill Country wine and you talk about Texas wine, what does that mean? Like what, what are you going to experience if you go to one of these wineries? What are you going to expect in the bottle? 
um, where is it headed? Where does it fit in in the in the sort of the world of old wines and other new wine regions? And you know, Julie's actually, and she can talk to this a little bit, has had some involvement too, both because of Twiga, but she's been involved in the conversations with uh, like TDA and others about marketing the sort of the fuller, the wider sort of Texas brand of wines. Um, that you know, she can kind of get into the challenges there because they're really trying to hit that 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 bigger message of. You know, again, what is Texas relative to the rest of the, the world and the rest of the country? Um, otherwise, the association is a lot of it is just about how do you keep uh, and network this ever growing group of wineries? Because when we got involved, there were less than 20 wineries in that association. There are now over 60 and growing quickly. Um, and so it we don't involve like we're not necessarily like being advocates for the wider Texas industry, but you really are one of the big points that help those wineries continue to have networking conversations, education. So we do symposium uh, each year in order to do a lot of that, um, as well as just try to create a lot of networking events for tasting room managers, for production folks, everything for growers, um, because that is, you know, that is one of the key features is kind of like sort of collaborate and create ideas and learn and, and share. So, Julie, how has the Texas consumer that walks through your door changed since you opened in 2006? Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, well, we opened the doors in 2008. I should clarify that okay. we founded in 2006, but you make wine and then you wait. Sell it later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it has to age. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, we opened the doors in 2008 to all of two people, uh, as it turns out. <laughs> so, uh, no, it's changed quite a bit. I mean, the reality is that you know, a, I mean, people didn't know the, the the varieties that we were we were growing and we were we were making wine out of. I mean, Viognier, it was called Viognier. Uh, Tempranillo is called Tempranillo. Uh, so it's just, that is the amount of knowledge. And that's, I mean, there's been an evolution in just wine consumption in the United States away from only drinking Cab, Pinot Noir, Merlot, et cetera, uh, to really being open to varieties that you cannot pronounce, you know, on first, first seeing them. Uh, and so uh, that has changed. Um, I also would say, and this is as much as much Texas consumers as it is non-Texas consumers who come through the door is that they're not coming in the door with a negative idea. That was really, it took a while. There was sort of a healing process almost that happened, had to happen in the Texas wine industry because, you know, I was talking to someone just you know, the day before yesterday and it was sort of like, you know, we agreed that if you had gone to the shelf someplace in 2002, picked a, bottled wine, Texas wine off the shelf and tried it. It was a pretty dicey affair, right? I mean, it's just the, the chances of you getting something you really liked was, you know, <laughs> you know, there were some good wines, but it was really, you know, it was, there was a, what you were just talking about. There was no identity that sort of said, Hey, no, we need to focus on, you know, on doing these things. And people, you know, uh, the variety piece was very important that we started growing the things that we should be growing and making wine from them. So, um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that, that evolution, I never have, I don't think I've heard anyone say something like, oh, Texas wine, I'm only here because so-and-so dragged me out here kind of thing. Uh, I haven't heard that in a long while. So uh, that's changed quite a bit. And, you know, the reality is people just, just randomly go up in 290 and don't look up anything. They're still actually fairly likely to find some good wine, right? If they just do it randomly. So, 
Yeah, and I mean, and, and the other thing Julie got, and Friedrich both got involved in this very early was working on sort of going out and finding the people who could advocate for Texas wine, particularly in the Assam community, that there is good wine and that, you know, give it a chance. And like that has grown over like the last 10 years dramatically to where, you know, for consumers who go into retail or who just, you know, like want to reach out and, you know, and, and talk to a professional, you know, like read reviews, there are now a number of a really good community of people in that and trade who can who can speak to the quality of Texas wine and where it's good, right? Um, but I know, like when Julie and Friedrich first started going to some of those conferences, some of those same attitudes of, well, you I mean you're not serious, right, about Texas wine was kind of a starting point. And I think now that's rare. It's very, it's it's usually that, okay, I definitely know there's good Texas wine. Show me what you got. Is this something, you know, that I think fits what I believe Texas can do well. And that's a much better conversation to be having with anybody in the business is there to recognize there are really ways to make good Texas wine. And now let's just evaluate whether you're doing it. Right. As opposed to saying, I just don't even think the premise is, is, is any good. <laughs> Um, which was kind of where it was, I think, when we started. A lot of people just doubted the premise was worth considering. So, I have just been having a Facebook discussion about an article that came out recently that was called, Does Texas Need a Signature Variety? Mm-hmm. And I also attended a Texom seminar. You guys might have been there a couple of years ago about whether or not Texas needs a signature variety or perhaps varieties. I know that your portfolio leans heavily on Tempranillo and Viognier, but when you think about marketing Texas wine, do you think it's important that the industry come together around a few certain varieties or how would you approach that from a marketing perspective? It's, I mean, A, it's just not the case, right? You know, um, the, the, the reality is the, the, a lot of things grow well in Texas. And that was really sort of the discovery process. Once you got out of like, oh, we need to do one of the things that people recognize. You start saying, okay, we're not going to do the things that people are recognizing. And then you start testing these various varieties. Uh, You then realize, oh, wow, there are a lot of Mediterranean varieties. You just go along all those coastlines in France and Spain and Italy. You're just going to discover a lot of varieties that are going to do well in Texas and you're going to want to test them. Uh, And so it's really become almost the opposite message to say, no, 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 we're not a one-trick pony, right? Uh, and we're vast, right? It plays into the fact is Texas is the size of France and you would not expect France to have a signature variety. That would be sort of silly and un-French. Uh, so the reality is the diversity message has actually become the more important message. Uh, and in this case, I mean, just to give a little perspective, the other state that has you know, developed a very good reputation that is also like that is Washington. Washington does not in any way, shape or form have signature variety it grows almost everything uh and so we're more like that and they've been able to be successful on that i mean if you look at a map of just red mountain ava and look they have converse demeanor in one place and then they'll have something like more somewhere else just because you have that elevation and the aspect all works that you you can find a microclimate where you can grow, grow an amazing diversity of things and so yeah i think that is the message at this point is that you know look at all the things we can do, right, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'd echo, I'd echo a lot of what Julie said, too, because I think it's, it, it would be, for a, a marketer's point of view, it probably would be easier if you were asked to market, like, some signature varieties to be able to characterize the region. 
it's a it's a nice encapsulation if you can just say, oh, this place does X really well, like as far as a particular variety, but it it doesn't match reality um, because. And I think for a lot of it too is I'll add from the winemaking point of view, it's that you know if Texas has has a particular characteristic or a part on the sort of the measurables that it's high on, it is on variability to vintage and to just general climate, and that those extremities don't lend themselves well to just picking a single varietal and trying to make it the same way or in a good way every year. Typically, like one of the obvious levers you're pulling to make a quality wine is to have a portfolio of varieties that bring different strengths and weaknesses to the table, and then having that flexibility to blend with those different pieces. Because honestly, I mean, you just look year to year what the yields alone look like on different varieties, and you can quickly see why that would be beneficial. But honestly, when you get down to the finer point, the qualitative parts about what comes out well under different conditions, there's some, there is some method to the particular sort of varieties we grow, typically because of how they complement and contrast each other in that respect. So it's, you know, like when we looked at it from the point of view of, for example, what would we ever try to scale and make in serious volume? There's only a handful of varieties we've even tried. Um, and I will point out that it's rare if we put a Tempranillo into distribution that is 100% Tempranillo in the bottle. Because even there, though we do feel confident enough that we can have 75% of that bottle be Tempranillo, we like and need frequently to use some fairly, and usually some fairly traditional blending grapes to often make that work. And that's why you see things like Graciano and Mauved and Carignan and others and Grenache in the mix because they help. Like they are essential to rounding it out and they can be blended in a way that doesn't Effects or doesn't you know undermine the typicity of a good Tempranillo from you know from Texas. So, I wonder if you could tell me about what I believe is a new wine for you guys, which is the Six Generations label. I saw an Albarino recently that a friend of mine had that I have not um, tried yet. And so, can you tell me about what that label is all about? Well, it's a I mean it's a direct to HEB label. So, and they came to us um, and wanted. And Dave can describe the, the picking of Albarino and Malbec, which is what we did originally. Uh, but the, what was interesting to me was I had to work on the label design was uh, I, you know, I thought they wanted really sort of a totally different label that you wouldn't even necessarily know was us. Uh, but it was actually they wanted it to be very clearly Pedernalis, but just obviously very different visually from uh, what our normal labeling looks like. Uh, so very clearly another brand. So um but yeah, what Dave can describe why why the Albarino and Malbec. Yeah, I mean, we like I said, the name was obviously meant to really kind of refer to like the long-standing family, like you know, living in Texas, since we have we can go back these six generations of Colkins, or at least descendants of Colkins living in the state, um, and they liked they like to really tie in the family element in the the messaging, and it was a good fit for us to do as well. So it's probably why it's like it has that historical kind of reference template as the the actual label using those Texas historical markers as the form. Um, I would like to yeah, point like, out, I'd like to point out that was a joke. I did that as a joke. It was like Dave kept kick, kicking yeah, back all the did, designs. Yeah. Yeah. That is, yeah, that one, that one test marketed well. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the, um, but then, yeah, in terms of what we're doing with them, we'll see what we, if we do some more and different varietals with them. Originally, we wanted to highlight 
a couple of different varietals that we do in Texas that we thought would be a good fit. And Albarino was kind of the, the easy one, I think, to figure out on that one because you know we only have a handful of white varieties we feel strongly about to do varietally. And Albarino, Viognier, and Vermentino are the three most you know common ones. We occasionally are doing Roussan in some volume as well. But um, and so that you know that was a good fit for us is a good fit that you know HEB liked too if they were going to be supporting this in retail. Um, Malbec was is the one that's more interesting. Like I, we were doing Malbec and we'll continue to for this wine for a while, but it did highlight this conversation, like what you were asking before about like picking single ver certain varietals for Texas, because Malbec, in my opinion, is one that isn't necessarily workable every vintage. Um, we had a really great vintage in 2018 for Malbec, and that was what, you know, like ultimately inspired doing that label for them. But that said, we weren't enamored with the 2020 vintage of Malbec, or no, I'm sorry, the 2019 vintage of Malbec. And honestly, like our experience over 10 some odd years of growing or harvesting it is that it's good about every other year. So I won't be surprised, like as we evolve this, if we want to sort of continue to keep that product, we may do a blend. And that's because I do think Malbec is a great candidate for blending most years um, or highlighting, you know, as one-offs. And that product will be a good kind of test of which it is, right? Either it's gonna be, we do Malbec for that 2018 vintage and then do something else perhaps with them next, or we evolve it in a place where it can be sustainable for people who liked what they got in that bottle, but it may become a Malbec blend. And I, you know, like whenever we're having conversations with people about like growing in Texas, we, you know, even like new wineries will talk about how they really want to focus on a particular variety. And I always sort of end up cautioning, well, think about what you can, you know, like what can collaborate with what you want to do, because, you know, there's, it's hard to find something that is going to just come through perfect every year. Um, it's just, I mean, we all- Be careful all of the promises you make, out. I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, also we just think about like living in Texas. I mean, you can think of years where it's like, oh my God, that year was- crazy on the weather, right? But we have to kind of turn out a great wine every year. And so you are looking at how we are really going to do that. Well, I know that wine in particular, your 2017 Malbec anyway, won double gold at the Finger Lakes competition just recently. And I was just a judge at the Lone Star International Wine Competition where your 17 GSM Melange was the International Grand Star Red Wine, which is the, the big, big award. I know you also won five golds at San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo, and I could go on. And obviously, these are important things, or you wouldn't be entering competitions. And I know that you're really proud of those things. But I wonder what things, other than medals, you're most proud of over the past year and things that um, people might not know about. Well, I mean, over the past year, I mean, I, my staff, <laughs> it's been a roller coaster to, to, to try to keep turning on a dime to change what you're doing as a business uh, and keep people employed as much as possible. So, and I really, you know, they, they were amazing uh, in terms of me coming in and saying, okay, now we're going to do this. Right. And then in, within a week, completely, you know, redoing the staffing or ordering whatever things we needed in order to execute that. Uh, people also, I mean, the other project we started in the midst of all this is we started a remodel of our tasting room. And so people became painters, right? You know, it's just, you know, overnight. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, 
talking, going back to the, the idea of, of culture and creating a, an environment where people want to be, I think, you know, it has you know, really shown this year that, you know, this group can pull together. And, um, and the fact that now, I mean, basically October was the first month where I could look at the numbers of what we're actually doing financially or in terms of revenue. And the fact is this October was better than 2019. Uh, because we seemingly were able to get the mix of things. And this is in spite of the fact that now we, everybody comes in with, you know, has to make a reservation and, you know, it's a completely different operation. We've been doing all the tastings outside because it's safer. Uh, and yet even that, and I think the fact is we may have discovered some things we didn't know uh, by be, being forced to experiment, you know, quite radically uh, in a very short period of time. So, um, yeah. So I'm very proud of that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I said, I, I think Julie nailed it. And it's, you know, like the only thing I can add really is just proud of the fact that we have a customer base that could go through this ride with us, that, like the wine club and all the different folks out there have been and have been amazingly uh, patient, flexible, and willing to just meet and wherever everybody's comfortable. And that fact has been, that's been amazing to see because um, it has, it has been, you know, like it, there's been so much uncertainty and I know everybody's kind of going through what is essentially is like their own personal existential crisis this year with the way things have upended things. And yet the fact that, um, yeah, they've been there and kind of rode through this with us, that is, I'm just proud that, that we've all built that, like the, the, the consumers, but in all the, you know, the folks that work for us in the company, everybody who's been part of our wine club is all is along for that ride. It's been great. So. That's wonderful. Well, David, I know that you've moved into an executive winemaker position. So does that indicate that you've got something else going on, um, expansion plans, or what, what are you working on for the winery that uh, in your all your free time? Oh, yeah, all my free time. Um, well, let's see. Like last week, it was, uh, I believe, staining the, the bar on the project that has yet to finish. Um, I, you know, honestly, that reflects more like a direction that I've been trying to go, I think, for a little while, which is that I don't, that is a full-time job. Like at our, at our scale, whoever is going to be at, you know, making the wine, making all of the, the day-to-day decisions about that has to be 100% focused on that. And so I've been at times trying to do that where I'll have an assistant winemaker who is training to kind of take on more of the responsibility and split it but it needs this sort of undivided attention of one person. And that, you know, like that means me stepping back as well. Like I can't pretend like I'm a co-winemaker and then try to make every one of those decisions somehow run through two people. It really has to go through one person. And in Joanna, we have somebody who has now been with the operation long enough and trained up to really have that responsibility and to make those decisions without involving me in that, that level which is great because it frees me up to do all the other things that come with, you know, my roles in terms of running the company. And that does mean making decisions about all our vineyard operations, a lot of our outside sales operations and acting since we don't really have like an internal general manager per se, general management winds up sort of being the split function between Julie, myself and Livia, our controller. We kind of act as different general managers for the different features of the business. And in any case, like, I, we, we make better wine when somebody is going to be entirely focused on it. And this is that my job is, is, is to stand back and sort of just make sure that what wines are being made are really consistent with the level of quality and the style that we want to make. So. And what's your case production now? 
Well, it, it varies by vintage. We're, we're typically like around about 15,000 cases production. Now, I don't know what you know about the 2020 vintage, but that vintage will be a lower volume, albeit 19 is actually going to be one of our larger. So um, on the on the average, that's where it falls out. But it, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're not, I will say it's like, we don't really measure what we're doing from a success point of view about size, since we're not like, you know, I don't think you'll hear either of us sit there and talk about how one day we want to be making hundreds of thousands of cases of wine, since that just doesn't really reflect the kind of business model we're, we're in. We won't ever do that. Um, instead, we'll sort of make what is reasonable to do at the quality level we care about and to be able to sort of operate a wine club in the way with the kind of like sort of level of touch and hospitality we need to really run. So um, distribution is important, but it's not it's not exactly an end in its own. We're not really trying to grow that into something huge as much as we want to make sure that people have an opportunity to experience the wine, you know, where they are as well as be able to come and experience it at the winery. So. And then finally, I wanted to ask about what sustainability means. I understand that that is a important concept for you and um, perhaps in the cellar and then also just as an organization in the tasting room and, different choices that you've made as in terms of um, your actual physical plant, if you will. Mm-hmm. Julie, you want me to do that one? Or you yeah, you would, yeah, do the production side. Yeah, I mean, so we, we certainly started from the very beginning wanting to embrace the idea of sustainability and how everything from how we constructed the building, uh, the, uh, constructed the whole facility to how we would run the operation. And I have to say, like, I have changed over time of what I feel like that term means because for one it is a tough thing to pin down right like there if you go out in California for example in the wine business there's like sustainability and practice you know sort of uh, guidelines which once you open that up and realize it's hundreds of pages of uh, incredible like incredible like attention to all these different ways you can try to make a sustainable practice you realize the term gets can mean and does mean a lot of things for us initially it was about trying to be sort of uh, low impact and in terms of just trying to make investments up front that would over the long term meant that we just were more efficient with our use of resources more efficient with our operation i think over time now i've realized sustainability means something bigger often because it does really mean creating something that's built to last that doesn't constantly have to just keep, if you will, like burning new fuel, whether that is actual physical resources, whether those are people, whether that's money, that ideally you build something that lives and endures on its own, right? That it is built to last. And we, I think like we look at it more that way is that it is an investment worth making for our community, for our company, for our employees, for our customers, and trying to factor those into what we do because it, it it is sort of silly to chase window dressing type of things that just look good if you're wanting to kind of look good on what you do environmentally if you can't really make an argument that that actually makes what you do less labor intensive less resource intensive and everything else and that's complicated admittedly like i don't like we like things like the geothermal have been are you know we, we can debate whether they've been in good investments but they were certainly effective in terms of putting capital to work in order to create something sustainable. Um, but elsewhere, we, we, we can, we've had some long debates about what is the best way to do that, because 
what we haven't ever really been all that focused on is just trying to do sort of check off the list so that we could sort of get some label about, hey, we're we can now we're now certified to be this or that because on the vineyard side, it's it's challenging trying to find, for example, the right mix between what is environmentally sound, what is safe for our staff, and what is financially viable, and what is viable for making quality grapes. So, yeah, I would say on you know, my side, I mean, was the, one part of I mean, the, the environmental focus of sustainability is usually what people approach first, and certainly as Dave said. The building was built, you know, we built the, the cellar right into the, the hillside. So you have all that natural cooling that comes from being essentially a, a cob in the you know, traditional sense. And then the geothermal cooling system, again, you know, expensive to put in, but, you know, th these are all long-term investments. And that is one nice thing about being in the wine industry. It is a an industry that you, you have to be thinking long-term. This is not something you say, oh, I'll just do that for three years. It's like, no, uh, you know, you, you would not it would just be getting grapes that you could even make wine from if you, you know, approached it like that. So it, it is an industry where you get to think about sustainability a, a lot and watch over time. Another part of it is the human element of it. I mean, a lot of you know, can farming continue at that scale and you're paying people a reasonable wage or you're, you're not overworking people. Uh, all those are important to sustainability. And then like, you know, for me, I have found that like in the tasting room, particularly that having a stable set of staff really makes a huge difference to have a team that stays over time. So we've developed all kinds of incentive programs to encourage people to stick with us. Like for, for instance, they get paid, they get, you know, when someone signs up a wine club member, they get a bonus for that. But then they also get a, a bonus every single time that person stays, right? And so, so every time we, we have another wine club billing, they get a little piece from that as well. And that obviously means that if you stay a very long time with us, you know, that can really build up because you will have signed up a lot of wine club members, hopefully. Uh, so, you know, that's a way of trying to create a stable team that all know each other and you know, pull for each other. Uh, and that's an element of it. And I know like early days, it, it was a struggle because of the unevenness of the, the, the work schedule, right? That, you know, we have, you need an army of people in the tasting room on a Saturday. And then on a Tuesday, you need you know, one or two people to come up with jobs and the right mix of full, full and part-time people so that everybody's making the money that they need to be making, right? And they could, you know, and that's, that has been a struggle over the years. And I think, you know, you know, I think we've gotten better at that uh, over, over time, so. Great. That's so informative. And um, I love that you think of your people and their longevity as part of being sustainable. That's a, a, an aspect of that I had not yet considered. I wonder if you can settle one debate for me before we go. Peternalis or Pertinalis and why? <laughs> and I have a feeling LBJ and Willie Nelson may factor into this story. Yeah. Now, I very much resist the LBJ pronunciation of Pertinalis. Uh, I once had a, you know, this is now like five years ago or so, uh, so this journalist who did a very nice article, spelled it Pedernalis every single time. And then the editor got a hold of it. And in big block letters, Pedernalis mm -hmm. misspelled. And that's really the problem with this misspelling is, is the fact that people then add that R into when they write it down. And so uh, we always say it's Pedernalis. And if someone says Pedernalis, we're not going to correct them. Uh, but the, the reality is that, you know, there is no R there, so. <laughs> yeah, 
Yes, yeah, so we all, I, I feel like we do sort of walk this fine line of being, I mean, both of us have been in Texas longer and more than anywhere else. Julie actually gets to at least claim she was born here, so that makes her a native <laughs> Texan, I think, by some people's standards. Um, but having moved around a lot, too, it's like I, I, I kind of both giggle and go along with like the, the pronunciations, because I know that it's just part of somebody's experience of being in Texas and being Texan. But I would echo Julie's comment that, it's paternalis because otherwise, like the number of times I remember showing up at the Austin uh, Food and Wine, Austin, yeah, Food and Wine Fest, uh, and it was on the billing as like, here's paternalis. Like, and I was just like, oh, God, you're going to be killing me. Because um, it, it, I mean, it has consequences, but it's also just, yeah, like it's it's funny to a point. And then I'll, I'll kind of say it, however, I'll meet somebody wherever they want on that. But it, uh, yeah. I think I think we we do try to steer people towards the 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 paternalis and then let them let them say it however they want when they right just buy a bottle and you can pronounce it however you like (laughs) but your last name is challenging enough to spell so the spelling of paternalis may be challenging as well but I want to thank you both for being here today this was great and got a lot of good information I feel like I know more about your winery and your family and that's that was the goal so well, thanks for having us. This yeah. Was really yeah. Awesome. Okay. Perfect. I wonder, I saw Julie that you're uh, on the economic development committee on the, for the County. Is there anything I can tell my husband to convince him that we should invest in real estate and Airbnb it when we're not down there? <laughs> Oh my goodness! It's that it, it, that is the one part of the, the the business community here. It is just booming. So anybody who ever ever thought about uh, leaving an urban area and retiring in the countryside is doing it, uh, because after all the lockdowns and things, it it, it was much nicer to be in the hill country, right? You can move around. It's easy to socially distance, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, yeah, no, it's. It's a very hot real estate market here right now. So yes, I know. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I tell him in two or three years we're going to be priced out. So if we're going to do it, we better do it quick. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, do yeah. think it's. And I think those trends continue even after this pandemic. I don't think yeah. that that's like a. I just yeah, the, the, people's flexibility and mobility has will continue to be greater. I don't think it'll. Well, and it's just yeah, it's just like what we're doing right now. You know, in this you know sort of virtual interview. The reality is people have gotten used to this technology and I've realized and are going to continue to use it. And I've realized that doing virtual tastings, right? If you have all only, you know, have people you can ship your wine to, right? They're, you know, they could be anywhere, right? You know, they could be in any of the 37 states that I can ship to. And so suddenly you can expand those kinds of events in a ways that you just never even thought about. Uh, you thought about trying to get everybody in the same room someplace and it's like no why would you know this actually opens up a way of sharing sharing wine yeah so uh, and when you record it people can watch it live or watch it for years to come yeah. so it just carries on yeah. well i will let you go and i again appreciate it and i wish you both a happy thanksgiving oh, yeah happy thanksgiving yeah see you soon Thank you, David and Julie, for being on the podcast. It seems almost unfair to the other wineries for Pedernalis sellers to have two such articulate spokespeople. The Texas wine industry is certainly better off because of your leadership. Oh, and your wine.
Today I am drinking the 2018 Pedernales Viognier Reserve from the Texas High Plains. This is one of the wines that I'm recommending for Thanksgiving in an article that I wrote for the State Fair of Texas that is scheduled to be released just as this podcast airs. In the article I write that this Viognier is a medium-bodied wine that delivers powerful tropical fruit notes. It's versatile enough to enjoy with the main meal as well as with turkey sandwiches the following day. That's if you have any leftover, which is doubtful. Now, here are my three commandments for pairing wine with holiday dinners. Number one is that one wine probably can't do it all, so it's fine to open a few, even if it's a smaller crowd than usual around your holiday table this year. Number two, select fuller-bodied white wines and lighter red wines. Rosé is a great choice, and hey, one of my recommendations in this article is an orange wine, so there's another option. And finally, number three, your wine should be sweeter than your food. That means your pie course will really shine when it's paired with a dessert wine. And Texas makes those too. Now the Pedernales website says that the style for the 2018 Viognier is slightly different than in previous years. It still has the toasted oak notes from partial French oak fermentation, but it's lighter in body overall than it's been in previous years. The grapes for this wine were grown by the Bingham and Reddy Vineyards in the Texas High Plains, and alcohol comes in at a moderate 13.7%. This bottle was a media sample sent to me by Texas Fine Wine. The price on the website is $40. If you're curious, the other wines I recommend in that article are some that will be familiar to some regular listeners of this podcast. I've talked about them on the show, like the Cherami Wines Riesling and the C.L. Buteau Ramado. The others I recommend I haven't mentioned on the show, but they're certainly ones that I've enjoyed over the past year. The William Chris Rosé from the Texas High Plains, the French Connection Wines, Cunois, the Austin Winery's Red Blend, and the Triple N Ranch Winery Sangiovese. Check out the full article in the show notes, and I'll share it on social media too. And by the way, my next article for the State Fair of Texas is about Texas sparkling wines for the holidays. Please tell me about your favorites and ones that you think I should recommend. And while you're at it, get on the State Fair's email list so you don't miss any future Texas wine news from Big Tex and the team. You can do that at BigTex.com. I'm taking some time off from the podcast before the end of the year. I'll have one December episode that'll be out on December 10th, so don't miss it. Go ahead and subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it too. That helps other people find the podcast. Please tell your friends to listen. Most people find out about podcasts through word of mouth, so share it on your social media. You can find all the show notes from today's episode at www.thisistexaswine.com. There are links to everything I talked about, and while you're there, sign up for the newsletter sign up to subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. And for those of you who have signed up, don't worry, I'm going to write a newsletter soon, really. Of course, you can email me with any feedback or questions. Who would you like to see on the show? My email is texaswinepod at gmail.com. And follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My handle is at texaswinepod. Happy Thanksgiving. I am so thankful for our enthusiastic and growing Texas wine community. I'm thankful for Texas Wine Lover website and Jeff Cope, who years ago took a chance on someone who didn't know much about Texas wine. Texas Wine Lover helps promote each episode. Be sure to visit TXWineLover.com 
whenever you need more information about Texas wineries or vineyards. And I'm thankful for you for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all.